You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. This episode is brought to you by the McKinsey Quarterly. Hi, I'm Cam McKellar from McKinsey Sydney office, and I'm delighted to be speaking today with Angus Dawson, a director and leader of the firm's strategy practice throughout Asia, and Chris Bradley, a principal here in Sydney. Both Angus and Chris have recently published articles on digital strategy for the McKinsey Quarterly. Chris, along with his colleague Clayton O'Toole, co-authored an article published in May called An Incumbent's Guide to Digital Disruption. The article looks at how companies can avoid becoming victims of digital disruption by recognising crucial thresholds and acting in time. Angus and Chris, thank you very much for spending time with us today. Chris, it's clear that the champions of disruption are more often attackers than incumbents. Why is that? And why is it so difficult for incumbents to respond rapidly to disruption? I think companies are well geared for running their business at current course and speed or responding to a very immediate and real crisis. But disruption is in between those two goalposts because it's uncertain and it plays out over a very, very long period of time. And we get the proverbial boiling frog problem in a company where the pressures of the short term and what's real and what's in front of your face are so all-encompassing that the disruption gets underplayed. There's nothing that a CFO dislikes more than a business case that's based on preventing decline. When you put a business case up, if you're going to get investment, you've got to show how it's going to add to growth and profitable growth. And disruption is actually saying we've got a different baseline and that's one of decline. And, and that conversation often just gets shut down. So just psychologically accepting a declining baseline in a business that you've grown up in and that you love and that you've actually got to take as the status quo or as the default reality the idea that this business will decline, other things being equal. Inference being big investment and big effort to maintain today's position that's a big bridge to climb. And that's why often you won't see the response until that baseline doesn't become a counterfactual, but becomes the factual. So for incumbents who may realise disruption is out there, it's perhaps lurking on the horizon and they know that it exists. How should they determine what's a real trend and what's just noise? How, how can they work out which digital trends are going to influence their business and which ones are simply hype? Yeah, so I think we've got to have a bit of uh, empathy here for executives who are being hammered every day with trends and and you know reports of how the whole world's going to change threats on the horizon both from people outside the organization as well as from people inside and to be honest most of them aren't going to eventuate right so i think we're starting from a position of you you are trying to pick the few things that really matter and the approach that you know we advocate to do that is to come back to the fundamentals of the industry and how money gets made. We call it the economic essentials, right, to understand and to really um, unpick what will change and why it will change and what are the markers of that to try and get through all the noise. So when these disruptions actually affect some of the deep wiring in the industry, you know it's real, but a lot of the trends operate at this surface level. The other point I'd add is that it's non-linear. So... The world changes slowly until it doesn't. So that's why I think if I look back through my career, most of these big changes, we've underestimated how the impact of them, but overestimated how quickly that would happen. 
I mean, I, I started my career around the time of the first dot-com boom. I don't think anyone at the time realised actually how profound the real internet revolution would, would be, but that it would be 20 years later that we're talking about it with real depth. And it's that non-linearity that's important and why we've made the S-curve one of the central analytical ideas in there because it's, it's non-linear. And because of that, any point where you extrapolate it on an S-curve linearly, you're going to get it completely wrong because you get this um, everything goes slow until it happens really, really quickly. The other thing that's going on, of course, is that it's not like you come in with an idea of a source of disruption and a good executive in a well-managed company says, oh, I never heard of that or never thought of that. They're thinking about these things. They've got lists of them. They've got workshops that they do as part of their strategy process every cycle. And there's usually some things that are mapped to it in terms of initiatives or responses. The question's one of, of adequacy and being ready to scale those things up when it becomes clear that these trends are fundamentally reshaping the business rather than just kind of mosquitoes around the edge. Which is a strong point. Good executives are going to be aware of the trends that play in their field. But once they've seen the trends, they're aware of them and reviewing them on a regular basis. How does an incumbent make them move to action? So it comes down to the very simple idea of, of resource allocation. Uh, and the resources that we talk about having to allocate are obviously financial resources in terms of budget and capital and also you know, talent and where management teams spend their time. And so it's recognising that the response to these trends needs to be substantially elevated on all those dimensions and spend real time on it. Because it's, not, it's still not like in the midst of all that you know exactly how it's going to play out. Uh, you've got to stay continuously vigilant and, and pick up all the signals and work out when the acceleration is going to happen. We think about it like you need to do a venture capital style growth plan for the new business, which is aggressively driven on growth and doing everything you can to make it work, while at the same time you have to do a private equity style workout on the old business where cash flow is king. Unfortunately, given the power structures in most companies and the mindset, the very opposite actually ends up happening is you get a huge amount of scrutiny and cash flow pressure on the new growth business and the existing business is presumed innocent before, before guilty. So there's some compounding factors though because once that disruption starts hitting and it's no longer a theory but it's actually real, the resources you actually have start declining. So this resource allocation that Angus is talking about you have to do that in the midst of a declining resource pool, which, which basically means that the new businesses, for them to get this venture capital-style push for growth, the old businesses actually have to decline. And I, I just think there's a lack of calibration around how radical that shift is. And you've got to remember the executives who are in charge are those who have grown up in the, er in the era pre-disruption. Uh, they're actually the architects of the existing business model. Their conviction in the basis of that business model and the, the way of competing and their expectations around consumer behaviour are all based in the status quo. And so they're just not wired as much to, to understand where the disruption is. And you combine that with the boy who cried wolf syndrome over and over again and then being right, they end up having a fair bit of conviction that actually ignoring a lot of the um, the merchants of doom who are trying to kind of sell a, a story that you need to radically disrupt yourself they end up believing that's actually right. Uh, and so they miss that kind of one in 20 uh, big big shift that's happening, uh, or you know, at worst it comes to them a bit too late 
and then they're facing all the inertia that is in a, a large organisation that makes, makes it hard to respond. Which brings us to the question of motivation. How do you find the conviction within the organisation to respond quickly and decisively to disruption in the face of inertia and the many competing priorities at play in the management team? It takes leadership, so you can't look at responding to disruption in some kind of theoretical view where it's not about people at the end of the day making really bold choices. One thing we want to be presenting though is a very empathetic view on this because we're actually with our clients in these situations and Angus talks about the boy who cried wolf. That's true. These management teams are going to be right and right and right and again until finally they're wrong. Angus talked about what made these executives successful and the skills they have and the whole basis of disruption is a new basis of competition in the industry or a new business model. Um, it's highly unlikely that the old management team is going to have the skills to do that. So I think sometimes we expect not only this terrific flexibility of people to see what's coming, but also be able to kind of do themselves out of a job. Because the reality is many of these new businesses require new leadership and new management teams to do it. The analogy of the boiling frog, and I've tried to pr prove whether boiling frog analogy is actually real or not. And you, if you Google it, you, you get about a 50-50 on whether it's real or not. I'm not willing to do the experiment on myself, but the, the idea is, the idea is if you put a frog in a really hot water, it jumps straight out. But if you put it in the cold water and then slowly raise it to the boil, by the time it realises it's um, too hot, it's, it's a capacity to act has gone. Whether it's apocryphal or not, it's a useful analogy because the difficult thing about navigating to disruption is by the time you really, really, really need to act, your capability and capacity to act has taken a severe blow. Therefore, you have to act before you have to act, and that's what's hard. Um, given all the things we've talked about before, the pressure from the board, the pressure for continuation, the boy who cried wolf, and the management's own fears and concerns that actually they might not know how to run that new business that, that you're talking about. Because faced with a genuine crisis, most management teams are very good and they know how to respond. It's uh, turning a potential crisis into the same set of urgency and, and actions that you'd have. And I, and I think, too, often the early stages of disruption create a sense of overconfidence in response. The management team will have a set of actions that they're taking, and usually if they're one of the better of the incumbents, they're actually doing just fine. But if you look at, let's go out of digital for a second, look at the supermarket industry in the United States right, through the rise of Walmart. Mm -hmm. Uh, what happened is Walmart swept through the country with their um, Supercenter offer, which included grocery. The supermarkets that got wiped out were the, were the worst ones and the weak ones. If you were sitting there as a better incumbent, you actually did just fine. You could have convinced yourself that your business model and your proposition was actually resilient to, to what Walmart was doing. You know, It's the old, I don't need to outrun the, the bear, I just need to outrun my friend who's also running from the bear. Well, eventually, when the bear's eating your friend, the bear's going to then come after you, and that, that's, that's, I think, what, what happens. Yeah. And so that period of false confidence yeah. can also just lead to, in the most important moment of response, it being undercooked. So to carry on and, and hopefully not labour that analogy, how do you speed up when you realise the bear is onto you? Let's say it's eaten your friend and you're firmly within the bear's sights. How does an incumbent accelerate the rate of transformation within their businesses? So the best way to speed up is to get a head start. Then when you, you haven't sped up, I think adopting that more radical 
response and that sense of crisis. And it comes down to accepting your baseline. And the word that a client would use that tells me they haven't accepted the baseline is the word cannibalisation. And you'll hear it again and again and again, which is, you know, we can't do that, it'll cannibalise our, our business. Now, of course, if your friend's already been eaten by the bear, it's not cannibalisation at all. I think, I think that's a really important element of what you actually need to do to respond, right, is you, you need to do real strategy work. Right? You actually need to step back and say, do the businesses we own make sense in the way in which the world is unfolding? And are, we, are they going to create value and are we the best owners of those businesses to create value? And then where else do we need to think about investing? What's the bar on, on the capabilities that we have? Uh, and how much has it gone up? And are we at scratch or are we going to end up being outcompeted by somebody else who just reconceives what's possible? Uh, and I think it's that thought process that we would encourage the management teams to start uh, and to make it not the fringe that's actually having these discussions, but to bring it front and centre into their leadership discussions about what's really going on with disruption and let's play forward a few scenarios as to what could unfold. And under those scenarios, what, what are the things we wished we would have done in terms of buying or selling particular businesses, in terms of shifting resources, in terms of really beefing up particular capabilities uh, and so on? It's a bit to me like quitting smoking. And I may or may not have once have loved to smoke. And there you had a, this contest as the smoker between your current self that love that next cigarette and your future self that didn't want to live with the consequences of many years of smoking and knew that once you were actually were out of that vicious cycle of smoking, you'd actually be happier. And there was the in-between self that was very, very grumpy. <laughs> Apparently. But these are deep-seated habits. So trying to get a CEO or a board or a management team to act like they would thank themselves for in five years' time is actually really hard because the current self does have these, fe these strong feelings and these pangs and these kind of urges to keep the current habit going now smoking at least is a solo game but this one you've got to actually all stop smoking together the board the whole the management team so and that's where i i say the defining characteristic of these companies to me that have navigated disruption well whether it's netflix or or tencent or facebook or axel springer is incredibly strong leadership from the top. Can we expand on that a bit, Chris? What role can the board play? How does that leadership work? I think the board conversation can be one of the toughest parts. Partly it's because it's quite hard at times for a board to disentangle all this talk about declining baselines and threats with is the management team doing everything they can to run the business well. You've got to remember, when this all starts happening, the p company starts hitting air pockets of performance, Right. The board stops seeing that steady growth and natural questions arise and what's this management team doing and are they doing everything they can? And so unless you have this very strong compact between the management team and the board that says, actually, this is our real baseline we're working against, you're going to have constant questions about, well, is that performance you're getting, are you blaming the disruption for actually a mediocre management performance? As a board member, I imagine it's very, very difficult to prize the contextual factors behind performance from the company-specific drivers of performance. And I think that's one of the toughest things boards have to do. Yeah, I actually think boards uh, want to do the right thing here. You know, they encourage management teams to have 
quite honest and sometimes profound conversations about what's actually going on in the industry and the implications for them. And I've actually seen a number of boards be quite nervous when they've seen management put up ambitious near-term financial budgets about what they're going to achieve and wondering whether or not they're investing enough in doing the right things in the future. But at the same time, it takes a very courageous board to step out of the status quo in terms of how they incentivise management. And most boards will insist that management's incentivised on returns to shareholder measures. And so if that company's starting, as most of these incumbents are, with pretty healthy earnings and pretty healthy multiples, then it's very, very difficult for that management team to actually improve total returns to shareholders in the near to medium term without driving near-term financial performance. And actually a narrative to the market, which is you know, our earnings are going to take a dip, Oh, and by the way, our industry is being disrupted, is going to trash the stock price. And at that point, I think the inevitable conflict of the board wanting to do the right thing and think long term and the management team being incentivised on the near term, the near term wins over and over and over again. I'd like to talk briefly about incumbents who perhaps haven't adapted by this stage. So a clear new business model has made itself known, but the necessary preemptive change in adaptation hasn't been made in the company. What are the challenges for the management team at this stage? Suppose it has been too long to respond. It's rarely the same management team that's dealing with the adaptation that dealt with the other sides of the of the curve, and it's probably the easiest time to pursue reforms. And I think where you see incumbent doing the most radical things is in the adaptation phase. Now, typically what you get is radical responses to drive cost on the old business. The question is, is it too late in the newer business models to get, get ahead of steam? And I think you see actions being taken to respond to the urgency of the crisis that are probably appropriate, but a huge amount of value can get destroyed in that kind of frantic set of measures to try and, and be doing the right thing. You know, either incumbents can slash prices aggressively when they realise that they're, they're out of the market without having worked out what's the financial profile of what they need to do to recover. Uh, you see businesses get disposed of in a way that sometimes can just be, let's just rip the Band-Aid off and get rid of it. Uh, you know, you, there are two, two different types of telco all around the world, right, with their directories businesses. Those who sold it five to ten years ago to private equity for billions of dollars and those who sold it for very small amounts in, in the last year or two as they just were trying to get rid of it and, and accept the fact they'd made a mistake. So I, I think it's a pretty dangerous time. Uh, and Chris has used the word a number of times through this conversation about the role of leadership. And you know, more than ever, I think, when the incumbents miss the boat, there needs to be that kind of steady and assured leadership about what is the path out of the problem that you're now currently in, at the same time as being willing to make really tough decisions on a whole number of fronts about which businesses you own, what to do with the cost base, how to compete in the marketplace and so forth. At the same time, as usually in the management team and the board, there's a bit of a blame game going on as to well, who was around during the, that process. And they usually will have unsold to the market what the, the pain of the turnaround path as well, which is why often actually the better owner of a business through a period like this is, um, is private equity. It's a very natural place for them to come in. That's why in this article we've tried to say hindsight is twenty twenty. It's all very clear. And we're, what we're trying to say is what, 
what kind of leadership model do you have to have to to have 2020 actual foresight. I think at the point of adaptation, there's three possible models. Model one is you actually can reform your business and be part of the kind of new guard. There's number two, which is you're stuck in the incumbent business model and it might be smaller, it might not be as growing as much, but it's still kind of a viable business. But path number three is one that's hard to stomach, but often the case, which is actually it's unclear that the old technology has a viable place in in the new world. Because, you know, disruption is not new. I think it's happening more often because the technological drivers are there. But when personal computers came and disrupted Wang with its, with its uh, uh, mainframes, we, we've seen this all play out before. The question is, uh, unfortunately, sometimes in that new reality, there might not be a business model to adapt to. Well, thank you both for your time. We really appreciate it and enjoyed that discussion. Pleasure. Us too. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.